Hey, Rockheads, it's time again for NDC, an incredible developer conference held annually in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will both be there, of course, but check out this all-star lineup. Troy Hunt, Rob Eisenberg, Scott Allen, Oren Eni, Michelle Bustamante, Damian Edwards, Brock Allen, Dominic Beyer, and many more. Register before March 11th at ndc-oslo.com and save up to $350. That's 3,000 kroner for you Norwegians. NDC, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1260, with guest Chris McDermott. Recorded Monday, January 18th, 2016. the scotch yeah no kidding now i understand all those movies so we're here in glasgow on the scotnet rocks tour uh great to be here in glasgow scotland Yay! a bunch of really serious developers <laughs> really serious uh it's been a great trip so far yeah. david christensen has been great to us by the, the way very good care of us give props to david we haven't been sober any more minutes than absolutely essential. <laughs> That's our public persona, actually. We're drunk all the time. <laughs> um, so uh, Chris McDermott is here. We're going to be talking to him in a bit. But uh, we do some things before we start our conversations, like the segment we call Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy. What do you got? Hubot. What? I think it's Hubot. It might be Hubot. Hubot? H-U-B-O-T dot github dot com. And this is uh, a bot. And it's an open source bot. Here's what they say. It's your company's robot. Install them in your company to dramatically improve and reduce employee efficiency. (laughs) (laughs) So it's an open source bot. It's got hooks into everything. Uh, It picks that you can use it in things like Slack or just by itself. And it picks up on text that's being said. And it does stuff for you. It'll respond, of course, but it can go off and do things and come back and tell you what it did. That's cool. And there's all sorts of great, uh, what do they call them? Scripts. Great scripts for it. There's uh, posting images, translating languages, interacting with Google Maps. Uh, there's a repository of scripts so in packages that you can add to your own robot. So I thought that was cool. It's trending right now, and why not just pile the hype on? A nice diagram of a robot here, but that's got nothing to do with it. It's pretty really. funny, actually. Yeah, it's very clever. Yeah, it's all done like a blueprint, as you can see when you go there. But it goes in your Slack environment, right? Yeah. All right, I get it. That's Commissioned cool. by GitHub. <laughs> cool. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1124, the one we did back in April of 2015 with Dustin Thorsten. And that's when we were in the, the Nebraska Code Camp. We talked about failure-driven development. Yeah, it was that? great. Which is actually a big discussion about yeah. Agile as well. Uh, and Barrett has this comment. He said, fantastic show as always. One of the things that f- always frustrated me about corporate dev jobs is that there was never any allowance for failure. 
If I give an estimate for hours, then indicate a percentage of extra for bug fixes, changes in approach, scope creep, and all the other stuff that I would include under the category of failure, that was always the first thing the PM would cut from my budget. It didn't take long to learn the corporate game of hiding my padding in regular hours estimates. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, the whole convert to metric, double it in that 30 days. <laughs> That's right. The consultant's creed. Sure. I used to half joke that I would calculate the real number of hours I thought it would take, then multiply the estimate by pi. (laughs) The joke part is that I really did do that. (laughs) By the time I factored in missing requirements, scope creep, bug fixes, status reports, needless meetings, ridiculous paperwork, convincing the server team that it wasn't going to break their precious servers and actually migrate my code and all the other corporate crap, it was really about three times another number of hours I estimated originally that it would have taken for me to just do the project in the first place. He's not bitter, though. So over time, it morphed from joke into reality. Mm. No, it didn't seem angry at all. Not at all. No, 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 no. And if by some miracle those things didn't happen and I came in ahead of schedule and under budget, I would look like a superstar <laughs> for a couple of days. But then it was expected all my future work would be the same way. But that's okay because it wouldn't be long before some other project went badly and it would reset expectations and balance would be restored. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, I didn't read that one. That was amazing. It's hilarious. But uh, yeah, no, not bitter at all. Yeah. That's just wisdom. That's what yeah. that is. Yeah. Uh, so, Barrett, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. We publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. If you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us tweets. We... Drink them like scotch. How's that? That is to say, with no ice. With no ice. (laughs) We we drink your tweets neat. And let me now introduce our esteemed guest today, Chris McDermott. He is an agile coach, developer, and conference organizer. In his 14-year career, he's worked in various different domains from the police, investment banking, reverse logistics, and media. Since reading Kent Beck's Extreme Programming Explained in 2003, he has been passionate about agile development. After discovering Kanban and subsequently systems thinking, he has become increasingly fascinated with organizational systems and how to make them more effective and more humane. Chris is the organizer of Lean Agile Scotland and the co-organizer of the Lean Agile Glasgow Meetup Group. Welcome, Chris McDermott. Thank you very much. How are you, you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Great. Beautiful country you have here. It, it's it's a gorgeous country. It's usually uh, we had a one day of snow. Yep. Yeah, that's yes. good. Yes. The time for yeah. us to get here and be delayed yep. in the in, in the air. They yep. knew we were coming, telling us that's, we might have to land in Edinburgh. But yep. the rest of the time, it's just rain. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, excellent. <laughs> no, it very much reminds me of Vancouver because it just it's winter time. It rains. That's what happens. That's your balance. I yeah. suspect that Richard picked that comment for a reason. That you know, failure is change, right? And uh, the the two are very related. So, what did you think about his cynical yet kind of wise uh, take on it? So, I, I think that, that it gave me sort of two things to to, to chew on there. I think um, failure is a really important thing. Sort of, mm-hmm. um, which was saying at the end there, we've got to get used to um, failure and accepting failure as just run of the mill. Uh, and it gives us the opportunity to learn and, and try something new. As long as we actually learn from it. Right. Indeed, indeed. The, the, the kind of world we operate in is inherently complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not something that we can um, predict. You know, it's not what is uh, the, 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 
the complexity science would say it doesn't have linear causality. Mm. You can't say we do this and then we'll do that and then we'll do that and then we'll go yeah. something new. So what we have to do in order to, to understand things is experiment and failure is a big part of experimentation. We, we'll try new things, we'll see if they work. If they don't work, we'll try something else. I think the, the, the key thing for me about experimentation, certainly when you come to change um, in organisations, is try to make um, as many of the changes as you can safe to fail. Right. Not, not feel safe, but safe to feel. Oh, nice. And that you, if it's, uh, you, you try something and if it works, you can then, oh, that's good. We can amplify it. Right. And we'll try more of that. Uh, but if it fails, what you can do is you just roll back and you go and try something else. And you've not caused any sort of lasting damage, I think, in the, in the change. And ho hopefully you have the luxury to try a few things, you know, try a few approaches to solving a problem, a particular problem. Well, I guess that, that another kind of uh, sort of bit of guidance from complexity theorists, theorists is to do multiple parallel safe-to-fail experiments. Sure. Yeah. Try a number of different things, and then when you find the one that that works, then you you can you can uh, you can sort of latch onto that, and you can move forward with that before you find another problem, and you get another like, sort of set of experiments. It's a conversation I've had with folks that have getting got a mature DevOps practice happening in their organization where they're now building multiple versions of features. Yep. Uh, and just trying them all, A-B testing features, yep. because they found they were wasting a lot of time at the whiteboard arguing over the right way to build things. And it yep. was faster to just write them and try them if you've got that infrastructure in place to actually be able to test stuff adequately and you've got a culture that accepts that stuff could be wrong and should be fixed. I think that's, that's it's a, I don't think that's an easy thing to get to. So the culture is one aspect of it, but the infrastructure, the capability in order to, to go and test stuff and make sure it feels, mm -hmm. if it feels, um, give yourself the opportunity to, to try something new. Um, I think uh, a large part of that is the way in which we develop code, for example. You, you talked a bit about infrastructure and um, cloud services and, and Docker and things like that, mm -hmm. which give us the speed. But if we kind of deliver crap fast yeah then you know it's going to break it's going to be brittle and we don't get the opportunity to learn we just spend our time fixing well and and it's really interesting the part of you know do you get in this trap of you you've deployed crap and now you're trapped in a cycle of constantly fixing it yeah. rather than we'll take that back out put something yep. else in is there is there anything to sort of priming the pump before you do a project by making sure the team is comfortable with each other you know by maybe doing social activities together, playing games perhaps, or uh, that kind of thing. Doesn't, doesn't that, does that have a place? I think so. I think, well, um, I think a large part, part of what we do is social, right? So we have yeah. to, to uh, sort of learn to uh, work together and understand each other. I, I think sometimes games and things like that are, can be slightly false and not give us a true understanding of each other. I think sometimes it's best to go on and try and work together in hmm. an environment where we say we'll, we'll accept when we make some we make a mistake yeah let's work together and try these things because we'll all have different views of different topics some of us like to pair program some of us don't like to pair program and some mm -hmm. of us are are test infected and really want to test all you know unit test driven code others will say we don't quite get that so trying to force those kind of those those collaborations and those yeah those techniques i think are kind of prone to, to of them um, either kind of uh, losing the, the real momentum you get when it, it connects. I'm, not, I'm thinking of a situation that happened to me where I was in, on a team and there was one guy who was kind of acerbic. You know, he was a, had a, this personality who was kidding all the time, yeah. kidding people, but, you know, in a slightly 
put-downish way. Yeah. And if you knew him and you spent any time with a guy, you'd know that it was just his way of or relieving fun. stress or whatever yeah. and, and not to take it personally. But you would only find that if you were out in a social situation. Yeah. Whereas if you're in a meeting and he tells you to bugger off or whatever it is, yeah. you know, you, you, you might completely derail the, the project. Yeah. So, I mean, th- yeah. it, it takes a long time to get to that point. You know, it can't just happen magically overnight. It takes a long time for teams to build up that relationship and that understanding of each other and how they behave and what their strengths and weaknesses are and things like that. And you'd rather that people work together to build those relationships rather than make other circumstances? Well, I think there's, there's, there's subtle things like eating together, for example. I think there's yeah. a, a magic yeah. time. Yeah, right? it it's like When I talk to project leads, it's like if you don't have every lunch planned out, you're wasting yeah. an awesome opportunity. Yeah. I think it was um, in Lisa Atkins' book, uh, Coaching Agile Teams. I think that's what it's called. She, uh, she said one of the first things she did with the, with the team was to invite them all around for dinner. Right. And sort of made food with them. As it's also deeply to, intimate. Yeah. Dinner is different from lunch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, dinner is yeah. a very personal meal. It's a family yeah. thing, right? Yeah. 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 That's a, yeah. It's really interesting. So the, and so she also made food preparation part of the ritual as yeah. well. Yep. Yeah. I think they all kind of work together to make the meal. Yeah. I'm, I'm a barbecue aficionado. So I have taken entire teams, dragged them over to my smoker, and we have made ribs en masse. <laughs> <laughs> Which the best part is you get to eat the results, right? Yeah. Uh, You're hot it, it definitely was uh, getting people out of the comfort zone, yep. experimenting with things. And it's all those little side conversations. People get to know each other. Yep. Uh, humans seem to be hardwired to trust people they eat with. Right. Like, they, yeah. it's like you almost don't have a choice. And I've met, I've been in companies where people refuse to have meals together. Like, that's how bad it yeah, was. You, you have the, uh, we invite the ops guys out for pizza because ops guys will eat pizza too. Yeah. They're like, we like pizza, just not with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's back to the kind of old, uh, I guess, Tayloristic management approach. Uh, you, well, I guess Taylor's, Taylor's famous for this is scientific management, breaking work down into small pieces mm-hmm. and measuring each of the small pieces and bringing them all together. Then that's the, that's efficiencies gained by making these little parts faster uh, uh, leading on various things to management can- uh, canteens where managers sit over there and the workers mm-hmm. sit over there yeah you're split there's no connection yeah, yeah. no 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 line between all of those things hey dotnet developers you spent your career building shiny objects for other people and now it's time one was built for you well our friends over at stackify are letting us in on the pre-release of prefix a totally free slick super profiling sidekick just for .NET developers. We're talking all ASP.NET requests, SQL queries, web service calls, logs, and exceptions real-time, all the time without ever affecting performance. Run it right on your second monitor. They're including Prefix at a web event on February 26th. Just go to bit.ly slash prefixrocks to register for the event and get early access to the application. Prepare to meet your new favorite sidekick. So once you've gotten past that point and you, you can work together, then, then you start talking about processes and, and tools and things. I, I see sometimes processes as a way of getting people to, to work together or sure. encouraging people to work together. Um, I know that Agile Manifesto says individuals and interactions over processes and tools. Sometimes I see processes as a way of, of encouraging interactions, encouraging sure. individuals to interact. Mm. For example, um, one of the first, first things... Uh, I would ask a team to do is um, to do a te- use technique called three amigos. 
Okay. So when they're they're doing development, they'll, they'll pull a story, and the very first thing is is before we start working that story is we have conversations across the. I guess what would traditionally be the functional silos. Okay. So you have your analysis or your business representative or and a developer and a tester all come together to discuss that piece of work. Sure. And they get the they get the investment in the piece of work at the start and also what you get is uh the, the I guess the the, the the technical benefits of is that the, the tester gets the in, input into what the the function could be and how we could test it right and the developers they are saying what we're capable of doing and the business is looking at from their perspective as to yeah. what we need it to do um but i've seen teams who have worked in in silos put into scrums and continue to work in silos yeah they, they, they were just smaller right you know smaller kind of waterfall projects whereas something like three amigos helps them connect Helps them sit down and invest in that piece of work right. before they start. I mean, you've got an analyst that's coming, that's presenting the requirement yep. and talking about you know why he captured the things he did. You've got the developer saying, "Well, how the heck am I going to build this?" And the tester saying, "How the heck am I going to test this?" Yep. Uh, hell, you even throw an operations guy in there, maybe make it for me. It's like, yep. "How are we going to keep that thing alive?" Yeah. Mm. Yep. Uh, but having that conversation at the beginning. I guess it does two things. One is you're probably going to build a better product in the first place because you've had input from those different viewpoints. But you've said this a few times now. They're all now invested in it. Because you had input, when it actually crosses, when it crosses a tester's desk after it's been built, he can't ignore it or or poo-poo it. It's your input too. If it's awful, you were there. And uh, what that also um, aims to do, which I think is a key thing about change, is to help workflow. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so instead of having um, sort of boundaries between the kind of the functional silos mm-hmm. where work tends to go to die, right? So this would this would accuse build up. Yeah, yeah. Where, this, this is what your Kanban board shows off. Yeah, right? exactly. We, we hit uh, the death zone. Yeah. So the, the it always is testing. Why did I did I say that out loud? That's not good. Okay. It, the, the the three amigos element, I guess it gets the, everyone knowing about it, and we as they're investing, we want to get that through. Yeah. We want to get that flowing, get that going through through the boards and through out to to production to then be really tested. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that you know as we we're saying earlier on, it's it's failure driven. You know, we put it out there, see if it's what the the customer wants, and if it's not, then we can't. If we don't have that, keep a, if we t- if we spend you know three or four months developing a feature, you know you lose you have a potential of losing that window. Sure. Yeah, not market opportunity because it's a long time. If that happens to not be to not work out, yeah. Now you have a very frustrated developer who just spent I just spent three months on this, and now you're gonna yeah. throw it yeah. away, right? Yeah, so it's smaller. very demoralizing. Actually, I'm, yeah, I'm surprised is. how much yeah. it affects a developer to find out the code they've written isn't being used. Yeah, yeah. Or somebody mm-hmm. else is gonna do it with another. You know, we're doing it again. Doing it again. Yeah. You know, this time he's going to do it, it, and he'll do it better than you did it. You know, there's those. But, I mean, that's that was the start of my career. That was uh, a yeah. <laughs> that, that was the the four or five years working with the police on two projects in that time, and none of them seen the light of the day. Yeah, never, never made it into production. They were terrible. You ran into that with a startup, didn't you? They had too much money, so they never yeah. needed to ship. That's right. They they hired twenty three people before they had version one, and they had sales guys out there selling it. Yeah, it was not not it good. Didn't. But it's, it's no fun. No, no. it's not yeah, fun. it's not. There's not. It's not. It's not purposeful, right? You go in. It, 
we all, I guess, the, the, the audience, mostly developers, and the, the, the listening audience developers, we go in because we want to do this thing. We want to make something that's, mm-hmm. that has an impact. Mm. Yeah, whereas if we're going into just write code for no reason, then it's not very sort of motivational. Sure. Yeah, it kind of links with uh, Dan Pink's kind of theory of intrinsic motivation. Mm-hmm. We do things, well, we're motivated through autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Right. There's a reason for doing it. We're doing it because it will get something out there for our company. We'll get our software, we'll get out there and get used by real people. Yeah, yeah. I, I just like this idea. Certainly, I've worked in organizations where our purpose was we're trying to make stuff that's great. Yeah. We get really excited about it. But you need good finish lines. Like, yeah. how do you know you've delivered greatness? Is it just purely people chanting it? You know, like, can you come up with a metric that I says, like, we'll have nailed it when this happens? You pass all your tests? Yeah. In terms of write all tests and say if true equals true, I pass all my tests. <laughs> uh, what about the operations side of that? Are you seeing a more agile and more involvement in agile spaces for the guys who are actually running the infrastructure? Not firsthand. I think a, a lot of the organisations I've been in, we've um, we've been able to do a lot of the kind of operational side ourselves, so sure. cloud-based stuff. So a lot of things I've done in the past was with, through Ruby. So we just we stuck stuff in Engine Yard. Yeah, and there wasn't a, a great deal of operational involvement. Mm-hmm. Actually, we specifically went that way because the organisation had a, an, a sort of operational experience on uh, Microsoft. Yep. And we didn't have the deployment, like Ruby on Windows. Has anybody ever tried that? That's like awful. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, putting it out into to the cloud kind of allowed us to to sort of deliver it without a need for necessarily a need for an operational team. We as a team had to work that out. That's a that's a common story yeah. today. And, and it's an out, it's just another version of outsourcing, yeah. right? Mm. I think you've also find you, you know the wave of outsourcing and development was sort of this rec- this decision that we weren't understanding what our dev teams were doing. That was kind of voodoo. So let's make it voodoo for half the price. Yeah. Uh, that. I mean, it sort of feeds back into this whole communication conversation about how do we make sure, as tech people, the mortals, the guys who sign checks, have a clue of what we're doing and why it's taking so long. Uh, yeah, so again, if it's delivered quickly, they get to see it, so it's something tangible. Right. Um, the why it takes so long is a really interesting interesting one for me. The uh, Going back to your comment, the fear-driven comment, and about, mm-hmm. about estimation, Um I was reading a tweet uh, by David Anderson, who's the kind of the, uh, the the kind of founder of Kanban. He's the first person who brought uh, a lot of the the Toyota thinking into to software, and um, sort of I think he's the one guy introduced Donald Reinerson and a lot of lean product development and all of those ideas. He reckons that um, uh, software development software is somewhere between two to a maximum of about 20-25% flow efficient. Mm. And what flow efficiency is, is the the touch time, the amount of time you actually spend working on a piece of software. Right. From the minute you start to the minute the minute you end, mm-hmm. the minute it's ready to deploy. Mm. So um, if it's imagine if it's like 2 or 3% flow efficient, you'll have software that sits there unused for ages and ages and ages. Sure. And somebody asks you how long it'll take to do it. Right. So y- your view is how long it takes me to do it. But there's all of the other, other time, 90 something queues, percent. Yeah, that's where the queue, that's where the work, as we were saying earlier on, it goes to die. It goes mm-hmm. into these queues. So, you know, the, the limiting whip and the, the sort of creation of flow allows us to see, well, it encourages us to see work flow through 
end-to-end -end in the systems and get deployed quickly to see that value. For in, the in my world, sometimes it seems like managing customer expectations is a full-time job in and of itself. I mean, uh, you know, they have a deadline in mind, but yep. they don't really know what that means. What yep. does that mean, a deadline? That means when we are feature complete as developers, but that doesn't mean it's done and let's have a party and let's call the press and go out and sell it. Yep. You know, that means that we, we want to test it out. We want to test it in the field. We want to, uh, maybe we have to deploy it to an app store. Yep. And that process oh. requires you are at the mercy of Apple and the Google and all of that stuff or whatever they they might push it back to you and say no it's not it's not kosher and a lot of this is it's uncertain yeah sure. it's complex it's not mm. complicated we can't say we'll do this this and this and it's done a lot of it's emergent you're finding these things out as you do them right. sure yeah you go to App Store for the first time. Right. You're going to learn a lot there. Yeah, look, yeah. look what yeah. actually happens. Yeah. Wow, how many times have we gotten the software where the requirements say we're supposed to get to, and then the moment it hits the customer, everything changes. Yeah. It's just like, but, well, not quite like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a lot of what, I mean, the, the top of my bio there with uh, um, Ken Beck, That's for me, that was a, a real light bulb moment. Mm -hmm. Reading XP explained the, the original edition, not the kind of second edition, <laughs> where it got a bit more fluffy and uh, introduced a lot of theory constraints. But the original edition, he really talked about, you know, the all of the things that we think are good about software development and dialing them up to 11. Mm. You know, testing, do lots of testing, etc. And if we get it to the customer and they don't like it, let's get it to them sooner. Right. Yeah. They can like yeah. it early on. Yeah. And yeah. XP talks about iteration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's about iterative. It's trying it, changing, trying it, trying it, changing. Mm -hmm. Whereas, I guess, Scrum has kind of changed that dialogue slightly. So it's sprint. Right. Do more stuff and do more stuff. Yeah. And not necessarily embracing the, the kind of iterative nature yeah. of, of iterative day to day as opposed to iterative your month to month. Yeah. So a different cadence. Yep. Uh, organizations are changing. How do we make that seem agile? What does that even mean to, to have agile change? So uh, agile change. I guess when you use the A word, a lot of people think about that end state. Right. Right. So it's it's agile. It's some a team doing Scrum or they're doing any other flavor of those things that we call agile. Mm -hmm. Those 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 processes and and we're, we're we're delivering these 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 features quickly. Agile change to me is is taking a similar approach to becoming agile. Okay. So it's it's about taking a, an iterative and evolutionary approach to to finding whatever it is that's better for us. That you doesn't start with the things you can do and yeah. you work towards everything. Yeah. Yeah. So does a change moment really happen at the retrospective then? Uh, not necessarily, no. Um, I, I think what, uh, going back to David Anderson again in Kanban, what he taught us is start with where you are now. Right. Yeah. Um, and this links again to complexity. Keep bringing this up. But complexity says, you, you know, we, we can't define an end state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the perfect, perfect end state. And all we'll do is just work towards that. Right. What, what David and, and with with Kanban is and in, in, uh, encourages us to do is just to try and find the problems in the way we work, yeah, and slowly but surely improve. So you have to do some work process. first, and then you've got to scrutinize that yeah. work and say, could mm -hmm. we do this better? Well, I guess, I guess a lot of things with with, with Kanban method, um, not necessarily the Kanban systems, but Kanban method assumes we're doing something already, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I, I kind of fell into this problem a few years ago when I came to a brand new team. And I was, you know, I'd really kind of drank the, the, the Kanban, Kanban Kool-Aid, mm -hmm. I should say. Uh, and I said, right, we'll, 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 we'll put a Kanban system in place and let's see what happens. And everybody's kind of like, 
we don't know what's happening. Yeah. There was no, well, I guess what that would have um, benefited from as, a, as a, a new team coming together was having a more kind of structured and understood process. Mm-hmm. Maybe taking something like Scrum and saying, like, let's try this mm. and let's evolve beyond that. Mm. Yeah. So I always looked at Kanban as a good instrumentation solution too. It helped us see yeah. where we were bottlenecking, where the problems lie. Right. Sure. So, I mean, that, that for me, that's a huge thing as well. Like, sure. Uh, when I've... Uh, sort of talk with teams, the first thing I say is like, we were doing knowledge work. All the work is up here or in computers. Right. Yeah, there is no, it's not a factory. We can't see the widgets, touch the widgets. Yeah, it's very so, abstract. It doesn't yeah. really exist, actually. Yeah. So we need physical manifestations of it in order to to then manage it better. Right. Yeah, so cards on a wall is great. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great visualization of the work we're doing, where it's at, where we expect it to be, where there's problems in our process, yeah. things like that. Why is why do those people seem really, really busy? Well, look at all those cards. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> it's yeah, sort of a, it creates a visualization yep. that way. Yep. Yeah, I've seen that go in a kind of bad way as well. Mm-hmm. I've seen a visualization being like the uh, a great tool for a an, like an obsessive micromanager. Oh yeah, yeah. So the visualize it shows all the work on the wall. <laughs> And a developer gets off his seat and he move, goes up to move one card into done. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's a shadow over his shoulder yeah. saying, pull that one. That's yours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that, that that doesn't help us become agile, I guess, that, that well, part Well, it certainly it impedes autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Certainly absolutely. does. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Uh, guess what time it is? Uh, must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to increase the level of trust in this room by stabbing the haggis. Hey! <laughs> What? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, that's the dumbest joke I've ever heard. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a music to code by complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Music to Code by is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet and groovy instrumentals scientifically designed to promote focus. It'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. .NET Rocks fans are being more productive all over the world with Music to Code by doing all sorts of stuff, not just coding, but homework and uh, studying, reading, writing. Check out what all the fuss is about. Go to musictocodeby.net. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Simon Price. No golf clap for Simon. Real clap. And Simon just won the complete collection. There are currently 11 tracks in that. Woo. Yes. And uh, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what we just did, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. And every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of that fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And uh, Chris has been thinking about this one all week. Chris, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy? Uh, I don't know how popular this will be in the Microsoft uh, <laughs> setting. I, I sat, sat today, I so, said, well, what is $5,000 in, in, uh, in pounds? In, in pounds. Yeah. Less. It's, it's, it's 3,200? <laughs> it's 3,500. Like it's like a whole yeah. liter of gas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Petrol, for, excuse me. <laughs> For for three thousand five hundred, I think I could get myself a twenty seven inch iMac. 
Uh-huh. Ah, Mac Shopper. Yeah. See, it's one of the few products where you can reliably blow the entire budget. <laughs> True. <laughs> it's like, I it seems like a lot for a computer until you're buying a Mac. And then it's like, yep. oh, I can go three times that if I try hard. A couple of terabyte SSDs, couple of extra monitors, yeah. kaboom. <laughs> but I managed to fit in as well a 13-inch MacBook Air. Oh, oh nice. Uh, I, I wanted a frivolous spend, so an Apple Watch. <laughs> and and then I had seventy nine pounds left, so I could add twenty pounds and get That's like uh, one Apple cable. It's, or <laughs> or a Nokia Lumia ninety twenty. Ah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So I went for the cable. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that Nokia is a very good camera. <laughs> yeah. That's a, it's a cool collection of stuff, actually. Yeah, it is. It's very gadgety. We recently did a show where somebody was into the hardware, and they were actually going to build their own drawer of broken dreams. They were going to get one of every phone and one of every <laughs> tablet. It's like, you know this is just a path to heartbreak, right? <laughs> spend $5,000 on all this stuff. They'll just make you sad. Hmm. All right. Uh, well, I guess we should swing back into this again, because changing organizations seems to be incredibly hard. Like, it just... Organizations are so resistant. Are we just going about it wrong, or is it just always going to be that difficult? That's a great question. I think um, we're kind of uh, we're brought up with, I guess, the mindset of we can work everything out. Right. We have. We have. Um, I was reading Team of Teams. It's a book by uh, General McChrystal, who mm-hmm. led the, the the kind of US um, task force in Iraq. Right. Uh, I think 2003, 2006, around about there. And he talks a lot about Taylorism and he talked a lot about what, what, what Taylor did and how that has affected the way in which we build organisations, mm-hmm. not just, you know, the armed forces, but organisations across across the world and across right. the different domains. Sure. This is a problem that's not specific to programming. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, uh, yeah, organisational changes, yeah, that's it's, it's miles away, I think. For sure. Yeah. So... Um, he reckons, or he quotes someone who says, Taylor is, was one of the most influential people of the 20th century. So that, that management didn't exist before mm-hmm. Taylor. Management, I think, was a role you got when you were experienced. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and... Yeah, I know, yeah. it was the Peter Principle, right? I'll get yeah. promote you to your level of incompetence. Yeah. Well, so he, he invented this, this, this management model where managers know more than workers. Right. Yeah. So the management do the thinking, the workers do the working. Mm-hmm. And that model worked well with um, complicated organizations like manufacturing industries and, and sure. things like that. And this is Dan Pink's thing. It's like, as long as you don't have to think, you just do the work, then yep. the financial incentives mm. make sense. Yep. Indeed. As soon as you need to think, the financial incentives don't make sense anymore. Yep, exactly. But, but what um, that has done, because of that model proved so successful and it, it was set off like wildfire. In sure, like 19, this is the Industrial Revolution. It was post-Industrial Revolution. It was the it was 1914 when Taylor um, uh, published the the scientific management his paper on scientific management, right. and it went it went global. There was there was stories mm-hmm. of him at like Paris trade shows with queues for for hours and hours to see a, a, an example of scientific management taking right. um, the creation of something very m- mundane from a craft where people would think and would chat about it and we'll build it and it's done to a very do this, then this, then this, then this and series of steps. But that's, that's the point I'm, I'm trying to make is that's the way our organisations are built. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So we've, we've, we've taken a, an analytical reductionist view to the design of organisations. Right, and, it, and by your numbers, it's like we have a hundred years of this where I technically think we're trying to shake off. Yes. Uh-huh. So 
we, I think the, the, the fundamental shift in thinking is to go from that top-down breakdown of work to more of a, a, a flow-based thinking where you, you're looking at from a customer's perspective. Sure. And that's hugely difficult because um, it's, a, it's a mindset change, not only for all of us who work in, those org- in the, an organisation like that. Yeah. Flow-based thinking has us um, not necessarily be so busy all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So exp- uh, um, sort of accepting the fact that sometimes we're not you going to be busy. You have to look the window. Yeah, you have to wait. And then be ready for work. Well, how so, many of us have had a manager where if you weren't typing, you weren't working? Yeah, if you weren't, you, you weren't resource efficient, right? You right. weren't actually, you know, working, working hard. Don't well, think, type. Yeah. So from the developer's <laughs> perspective, from the developer's perspective, are you uh, introducing new processes and new tools gradually? And they're, you know, sort of like the frog in the pot of water where you turn up the heat, you know, that proverbial story. Um, but do you have typically a list that works in an order in which you introduce these things you know the first thing we're going to do is a a kanban board you know and the next thing we're going after we've comfortable with that then we're going to lay some scrum on you and then we're going to you know is there is there a progression or does it met does it i, I don't think i think up to the, the team i think the first thing uh for me as a coach going into an organization and to help those in the organisation is get situational awareness, mm-hmm. get an understanding of the way the work works, uh, how you know the, what the processes really are. Because a lot of the times you speak to one of the things I do with teams is, is when we introduce Kanban, is say, "Tell me how your process works and do it on your own." So there's there's ten people in a the team. There's a sheet of A3. Write down your process or draw in a process flow diagram or whatever you want to right. do. And more often than not, you get ten different ideas. Yeah. yeah. So. Kanban, for me, is sometimes one of the first. Certainly, visualization is one of the first things I would do. But it's also a great discovery tool for the way people are actually thinking. Yep. So that might be one of the first things that you use. More often than not, that is. is, But I'm hesitant to say I have a recipe or I have a series of things I would do. I don't mean that. But do you find yourself, you know, using using it earlier on in the process, usually? Yeah. Yeah. Because, well, the essence of Kanban is change. Yeah. It's it's not about... um, you know the, the the argument you hear all the time is that Kanban versus Scrum, mm-hmm. and that's that's not a you know it's not it, really a versus it's not, case. It's no. not absolutely. Scrum is a product development um, method, and Kanban's a change method. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Kanban, yes, is, is uh, more often than not, it's one of the first things we do. However, I think if you go through the list of practices in, in Kanban, um, some of them are easier to adopt than others. Sure. So visualization is an easy one to adopt. Sure. For most people. Um, for most organisations, some not. You know, don't put anything <laughs> on the walls. I don't want to know. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to know. Yeah. Hide all that stuff. That's not. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think the one of the hardest ones there is um, limiting work in progress. That's where the the, the real the, the time when you in. don't put something on somebody, where you see there's a backlog building up, and you yep. chose to change your behaviour based on the board yep. rather than the board just being a reporting mechanism. Now it's affecting flow. Yep. That's call a pretty that. profound moment. Yeah. It's a, it's a uh, again, but complex people who call that an enabling constraint. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a, and a context, the way you describe it as a context sensitive enabling constraint. But it's, it's a way in which you have something that, that kind of encourages you to think differently. Mm-hmm. And through the process of doing that, you are actually changing and evolving. And one of the sides, I think, to this whole instrumentation thing is because we are desiring more autonomy and purpose, as soon as we have 
visualizations of what's going wrong, so yep. to speak, or where the problems lie. Because we are smart people, we'll tend to want to fix them. Yep. Given we could see them, we'll try and do the right thing. Yep. It's, it's just that we, we feel like we're being kept in the dark, that yep. we don't know that anything could be wrong. Yep. Again, the, the Kanban system, for me, gives you um, a, a systems-wide view. Mm-hmm. So it gives you a holistic view of a process. So it, um, Scrum, for example, doesn't encourage that necessarily, not through you know, discouraging it, but it doesn't help it happen. Because say you take your stand-up, for example. Right. That is... How many times has people been at a stand-up where you, you know, this is what I did yesterday and this is what I'll do today and then looking out the window, you know? Yeah. The, the, it doesn't... I mean, Scrum's also that moment where you say, I'm having a problem with X. Yes. Right? Like it, it's really an anti-thrashing yeah. strategy. That you now have a daily moment where you can say, this is taking longer than I thought, I'm struggling with this, and there's hopefully some resources around you that can yeah. help. At the stand-up, right? Yeah. That's sort of that moment that says, you can't tell me nobody was available to help you Every day we have this moment where you can ask for help. But again, I guess the difference in having the visualization and the Kanban board and the limiting work in progress is if those are the rules we're going to abide by, we visualize all our work and we limit when we right. reach, then what else am I going to do? You know, It's not just the, the scrum master or the, the, the kind of anointed person to fix problems. Yes. It's, yeah. it's the, you know, it can be, it creates slack across the team. And yeah, one of the things get, I like about a Kanban board in conjunction with scrum is it also tells me if I am thrashing, yep. am I blocking? Yep. Right? I can see on the board, I can afford to spend a few more days trying to figure this out yep. rather than go for the fastest possible solution because, you know, the learning opportunity is valuable too. Yep. So just knowing the whole company is not held up because I'm fighting a problem, yep. I think it's kind of powerful. Again, it gives you that holistic view. It helps sure. you understand what's coming before you and what's going after you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and where can you contribute, not just sometimes in your own area. As you say, you know, you could... You could take time to go into to help test. It was certainly a great, yeah, anyway. exactly. Right. Yep. Certainly a great moment in in, share, in Strange Loop when we had the Kanban board up, where the devs had outrun testing, yep. mm-hmm. and and so their answer was, "Well, I'm going to stop writing more features. I'm going to go help test." Yep. Yeah, right. And when those guys it, without test asking, right, like yep. that was what was powerful. It was when the dev came around the corner in the other section, says, "I'm looking at the board and thinking, what can I write for you guys? How can yep. I move this forward?" And they're like, "Oh, thank God, here." Yeah. <laughs> <Right? Yep. laughs> Talk about making people feel good about each other. Yep. Like that, that we really are working on all the same problem. Yeah, it gets the um, friend of mine says uh, uh, a Kanban board is a a linear view of your social network. Right. Yeah. So mm. all of the points is where you connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the opportunity to say, oh, well, there's a connection here, and I want to help these people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it can help that cross pollination that yep. you were talking about at the beginning of the show too. Yep. Yeah. yeah, the reason yep. yeah the reason test is so backlogged is because the features I ship them are terrible. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> now I get to test my own and, stuff and look at all of the the the, the features and tests. They've all got pink stickies on them because mm. yeah, yes. Yeah, stand back and you can see the product of your work. You know, yeah, it's, right away. it's not going so well. Yeah. And, you know, I keep put. I have an operations part of my life as well. Yep. And we started building Kanban-like boards for operations. Yep. And the biggest thing it helped us visualize was. Um, we were color coding by class of problem we were dealing with. Yep. So if you've got a bunch of cycles tied up in a new feature that's getting deployed, that's one class. Another one when it's an internal project. But when it was crises, when it was crashes, when it was you know uh, out of band fixes and so forth, that was just a manifestation of technical debt. Yeah. 
right? And so as soon as we had that board up and people could see, you wonder what IT does all day? See all this stuff? Yep. It's a byproduct of the code we've written over yep. the past two years. And it was a way to sort of say, should we stop building a new feature and start tuning the old features yep. to reduce this workload? If you've, have you read the Phoenix Project? Yes, absolutely. So that's one of the things they do in Phoenix Project sure. is they realize that so much of the work that's going on the, op the operations has to deal with is because of masses of technical debt. Yeah. Stop. We're not going to release anything as we go and, yeah. as we go and Let's fix. go and improve yeah. those things. And I think yeah. anything's always a scary word, yeah. but it's like, hey, could I ta have a couple of dev and test resources to tune features that are costing us a lot of IT resource? So there's, there's a... There's a guy called John Seddon who is a systems thinker and he, he's not necessarily in IT. I think actually looking at your, your podcast last thing, you spoke to him a few years ago at Autodev. Entirely possible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 1,260 shows, dude. <laughs> I try to so, remember them all, I swear. John, John, what's his name again? Seddon. 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 Systems thinking guy. He was a keynote at Autodev. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so he, he studies and helps service organizations go from that um, I guess I was saying earlier on that analytical view, that top down, break the work down into parts. I have lots of people do the parts and look at it from a customer's perspective. Look at it across all of the different different silos and not IT, but service organizations. He has has seen an average of about sort of 70 to 80 percent of the demand that's put on the service organization being failure demand. So this is the failure demand. demand. Yeah. Demand brought upon by not doing the thing right in the first place. Right. So, you know, uh, you see call centers, if you listen to the calls they're receiving, there's so right. many of these are saying, where am I getting my stuff? You know, what's, yeah. so I'll, I, you're talking about operations. That's a lot of the work I'm having to deal sure. with is failure demand. It's, it's waste, wasted efforts, mm -hmm. wasted time. So, you know, going back and doing that kind of understanding the root cause of these problems helps, you know, help us fix those problems and then get, again, establish that flow, get things going through and right. not wasting our time kind of busy work fixing stuff. Yeah, they, they, studying tech support for me has always been a really interesting part of the business. Most of the time when I'm dealing with it, it's a large organization where it's tech support for internal people. Yep. And often it's that they don't have visibility into the things they've kicked off. It's often easier to describe that in an e-commerce context. Like, really great e-commerce constantly sends you emails, right? Like, yeah. Amazon's got this nailed. The moment you put in an order, before it's really even looked at it, there's an email there saying, hey, this is what you ordered. We're working on it. Yeah. Then they go check inventories and send you another email. These are the things that are in stock. These are the things that are not. Here's how we're going to ship it. Then they do your processing. Like, what they're really doing is save themselves money on tech support, yeah. right? So the, the one thing they don't want you to do is call. Yeah. Because that mm -hmm. costs money. Yep. So how do I get you to not call by giving you enough info that you're confident you know what's going on? You mentioned uh, systems thinking yep. a couple of times. You mentioned it in your bio. And, you know, last week, publishing-wise, we talked to Dan North. Yep. He's got a term that he's coined, uh, he and his friends coined, called business mapping. Right. Which sort of sounds along the same lines. It's just a holistic approach to uh, understanding everything in the system that can affect everything else. And trying to come to grips with, you know, how exponential that com yeah. the complexity grows when you take into account all of these things. So is this, a, is there p parallels there maybe? Yeah, I'm, maybe I'm, not, I'm not, I've not read what Dan's done on, I'm, on I, I realize that. Yeah. Maybe we could just sort of define yeah. systems thinking as a thing. Yeah. So systems thinking, uh, or let me flip it the other way, thinking in systems. Systems mm. thinking is a, a, a different thing that um, is very much... Uh, looking at processes end-to-end -end and understanding all of the connections. But what that tends to lead to is back to this kind of analytical view or this this kind of I can predict the end state will just do all of these things together. Yeah. Sure. What think, thinking in systems for me is, is thinking about interdependence. 
right. is thinking about how people work together or parts of systems work together and they're dependent on each other to, right. to do what, what the, the purpose of the system is. Um, systems being things that have, you know, it's parts that interact to meet a purpose, I guess yeah. is our kind of super quick definition of systems. Um, the other thing for systems thinking is, is holistic view, is looking at the whole as opposed to looking at the small yeah, parts the, of the it. the pieces that you're yeah. responsible for. Yeah. And this, I guess, takes us back to um, what, I guess, Kanban allows us to do, is create a systemic view. We can start to see a full end-to-end -end system and understand that right. and understand the effects of actions as they, as they flow down through the system and understand mm. where, as you're saying, where the problems are systemically mm -hmm. and is it right for developers just to keep developing and just keep writing code? Yeah. You know, that's very resource efficient. That's yeah. very kind of keep, keep it feels busy. good. Yeah. Is Ed, it good? Yeah. <laughs> if it's, if it's building queue upon queue upon queue for the, or items on queues for, sure. for test, it then might not no. be good. No, because well, so it's trying, it's striving to understand all of those aspects of the system that affect each other. Yeah. Right. And how that, ultimately affects what we're doing here with software. And it, the, the, you mentioned DevOps as well. It's one of the ways of DevOps is mm -hmm. the, the understanding the system, yeah. understanding holistically how it all kind of can, hangs together. And I've, together. I've pitched it as know when to throw the party. Because if yep. you throw the party as soon as you finish writing the software and you've kicked it over to test, you make everybody <laughs> mad except the developers. Yep. If you wait until it's fully QA'd and is shipped off to deployment, okay, test and dev are happy, operations is angry. Yep. Uh, the we came to the conclusion that, that it was about instrumenting the app well enough to know when the customers were using a new feature. Yeah. And so it's so when we get this much use of that new feature, then we throw the party. <laughs> and that turned out to be late, much later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I guess, for me, that the learning has come from Eric Reese and Lean Startup. Yeah. And the whole idea of, ever, you know, it's not a requirement anymore mm -hmm. we're talking about. It's a hypothesis. Right. It's a theory. This is what we think is important. Yeah, and... That just means more parties. Yeah, I think, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if the work's going to, you know, continues delivery, right? <laughs> that's, absolutely. That's party after party. Not a party every day. Yeah, yeah. But I do like the aspect of that, of that instrumentation, because it's a way of lending purpose. Yep. You're not just write the code to tell you to write. Yep. It's we're trying to get to this place where these things happen. Yep. You know, folks are using that feature. We make a certain number of sales, those kinds of things. Those are very purpose-driven elements. Indeed, yeah. So the, the I guess, a, a, the... Lean startup thing that I've seen a lot of people do with their Kanban boards is not sure. done is not in production. There's the validating is the next column, yeah, and then it's done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's done once we've said, yeah, that's a good thing. That's actually given us value. That's that's kind of um, it's what we, we were, we're looking to do, or we've learned something from it, right? And we'll do something different. Yeah, we're we're yeah. making money from it, or you know, we're getting results from it. People are using it. Those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, Eric Reese's book still that relevant? The Lean Startup. Uh, I saw a tweet uh, a couple of days ago from uh, Will Evans, who's one of the guys in uh, from the kind of Lean UX, and he said the Lean Startup and Lean UX is dead. Hooray, you know? Yeah, and I, I one of the reasons I bring that yeah. up is like that's sort of become hip now to yeah. say Lean Startup is dead. So I, um, I think Lean Startup has bounded applicability. Yeah, it works, and you do you Lean Startup in an or, uh, an organisation who's developing, you know. Uh, Software for the health service or whatever is not mm -hmm. necessarily the right place to you know to do that. Sure, it's it's a, it's in highly complex environments. It's in startup environments really where yeah. you you don't know, you know you don't really know, and whether or not the whole pivot thing is you know is the, the magic sauce that sure the, the can edit we, can we, of, you can't talk about that pivot a hospital just yeah yeah. <laughs> can we talk about what the pivot thing is? 
So, uh, my understanding of Pivot is, you, you know, you have a hypothesis of a, of a product, say, yeah. and you start to release it, you get market feedback, and if it isn't what, you know, isn't generating the revenue or isn't, ha- hasn't got the kind of pool or attachment you want, you then have a capability to then st- to th- think again. What, what could we do next? Sure. And you try and experiment with something else. Isn't that just called iterative software building? I mean... It seems to me like that's what you do. You you put something out there, and if it doesn't work, you do something else, right? I think that's within the context of a known problem you're trying to solve. Mm. Yeah, so we have a we have a, a solution we're trying to deliver. Is this the, is this the right functionality for you? Just solve your problem. Oh, this is applied we, to the business itself. Yeah. So, right. yeah. so the classic examples of um, lean startup are are Flickr, who I think were a games company. And they wanted somewhere to post pictures of the games, right? And that became more popular than and that, the game. That part. became the thing, so they right. just pivoted. Yeah, in, in that. got it. Yeah, the the piece I suggest people read on lean startup is if you're not in a startup, is a sort of a chapter in the middle of the book that's yeah. like, okay, you're not in a startup, but you want to introduce a little experimentation yeah. culture to your bigger organization. And so there's sort of this is bit that Eric Ries put in that it's really like, here's how you build a tiger team and make that acceptable yeah. inside of a bigger organization that might come out with a new development practice, a new software style, some element that will improve the organization as a whole. But you've got to be able to, you can't disrupt the whole org, right? Like you've got to be able to take a small group and do an experiment and show value. Yeah, so that's back to the the, the change and making change safe to fail. Sure. Yeah, as opposed to kind of, somebody's got a great idea, let's take this big framework, let's just apply it all. That didn't work. You know, yeah, taking these small small changes. Small changes, yeah. Not three-month sprints. Yeah, <laughs> but it also feels like it's if you're going to do that, the thing you don't go after is the elephant in the room. Yeah, like once you can get a new practice in play on something that's unimportant to people, and that practice starts being adopted, Agreed. the elephant will die on its own. Yeah. But you know, I think there's a tendency for the personalities that are aggressive enough to try and change their organization to go try and knock down the biggest yeah, problem. Yeah. That's the that's where the kudos is. That's where the yeah. Well, if it works out, it's awesome. Yeah. It just mostly doesn't work yeah. out. Yeah. And it's probably a reason why it's been a big elephant for <laughs> yeah. so long. Yeah. Been there for so long. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Chris, I think that's a show. It's, is there anything else that you wanted to mention before we before we wrap it up? Nice. Nice. That's cool. That's, that's that. great. Yeah. Great talking to you. Chris McDermott, everybody. Let's give him a big hand. I'll see you next time on Sunday. Let's have a dram. Absolutely. Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a